1: Las Vegas has become the home of two major sports teams, and my guest is the perfect person to talk about their impact on Las Vegas and what it means for the present and the future. He's Alan Snell, whose popular website, LVSportsBiz.com, reports the business side of Las Vegas' expanding sports industry. For everything about Alan Snell, go to LVSportsBiz.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at LVSportsBiz. Alan, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Ira. So the Raiders now are going to allow only vaccinated fans to come in and see a show. Any effect on their business, you think, because of this decision, which makes sense from a public health standpoint, but do you think it'll have any effect on their business?
0: I don't think so. The Raiders tickets on the secondary ticket market for games this season have been going through the roof. They're setting all kinds of records in terms of what these ticket prices are are going to be. And the demand is pretty high. So if you're a fan with a ticket and you don't want to be vaccinated, believe me, your ticket will be snatched up rather quickly.
1: So it's one of those rare cases where good business works well with good health policy.
0: Well, I think it's just a really good timing for the Raiders to see, even though they had their inaugural season last year, there were no fans allowed in the building. But this year, fans are allowed in Allegiant Stadium. And at this point, the interest and this whole like shiny new play toy seems to be at play here where people want to get inside the the stadium. They want to see it. They want to experience this for the first time. So the Raiders could actually have an unsuccessful season. On the field, I think they'd still like sell a place out.
1: Yeah, that's quite the feat. How many times have you been to the stadium, Alan? So far?
0: Well, last year I covered all eight home games, but there were no fans. So uh, I'm a season credential journalist covering the team every every game.
1: But what about just visiting as they were building the stadium? That's probably what I should have phrased the question. Oh,
0: okay. Well, I've I used to visit the construction site all the time. I was fascinated by this incredible pace of building. It was 31 months to put this building together. The groundbreaking was November of 2017, and the building actually was open for business technically at the end of July of 2020 because of COVID-19. Believe it or not, a really interesting little factoid about the stadium is that the first fans to actually see a sports event or any event, really, were, were the UNLV football fans who saw the UNLV football team play on Halloween. They played uh, the University of Nevada at Reno on Halloween, and 2,000 fans were allowed in the venue. So technically speaking, those were the first fans, but really 2,000 fans in a building that houses 65,000 fans hardly makes a dent in the place.
1: And also with COVID, it has not been easy either. Do you see the business itself, once they go full board and have a full schedule and work out this vaccination issue, do you see the business being very good for the Raiders?
0: Well, keep in mind that it's hard to separate the Raiders from the stadium because the Raiders, I think, will do quite well. Keep in mind that The personal seat license revenue, this is the money that's collected and charged to fans just to get the right to buy a ticket, totaled $550 million. It was a record amount of money in personal seat license revenue for a football team moving into a new stadium. The stadium also has about 12 to 14 founding sponsor partners. These are businesses that are quote unquote founding partners of the building. Those are ten year, thirty million dollar deals. So if you do the if you do the math, that's another three hundred and fifty million dollars in corporate sponsorships tied to the founding partners. So right there you have nine hundred million dollars. You're not even getting into the ticket revenue yet, which is another couple hundred million dollars. So uh, the Raiders, I think, have done pretty well with the stadium. Keep in mind, the Raiders technically manage the stadium. They've hired a management company, technically, to run it for them. But officially speaking, even though the Las Vegas Stadium Authority owns the stadium, really on a day-to-day basis, the Raiders run the place. And they have a company called ASM Global that actually runs the stadium. And if you look on their website, you'll see that the place is fairly active. They've already had four events. They had two concerts on July 3rd and July 10th. The 10th was the Garth Brooks event. They've already had an international soccer match between Mexico and USA on August 1st. And they've already had a Raiders preseason game on August 14th. They've they've already had four events in the stadiums. And I just posted a story about WWE SummerSlam, the big wrestling spectacle event, and plus you have Guns N' Roses. So you have a lot of events coming down the pipe for the stadium. Also, keep in mind that the Mexico versus USA soccer game was kind of a fascinating game. I mean, obviously, the game itself was a sellout, more than 60,000 people, but in some ways, It was kind of a game that showed some clues for the future in terms of a potential major league soccer team perhaps being born in Las Vegas and playing in the stadium because that game between Mexico and USA was kind of a little showcase for how soccer could exist at the stadium. So I published a story on that as well. That's something to look up.
1: Yes, and again, it's lvsportsbiz.com, fascinating read on all elements of professional sports and business and politics, you're at the nexus of it all. And it's not just the Raiders, the Vegas Golden Knights, etc. But talking about the Raiders, again, when they were doing the ticket sales or the right to buy a seat, was there a breakdown on how much the demand for those rights to buy a seat came from out of Las Vegas?
0: Well, it's an interesting question. And it's kind of a little complicated. I'd say about local, 40% out of town might be a reasonable split. But keep in mind that a lot of local people who bought personal seat licenses and then the tickets did them as investments to resell them on the secondary market. And a lot of those people will be out of town. So that's why, let's say 60% were locals, 40% were out of town. That's not necessarily the split you'll see on game day. It could be 50-50 on game day because, like I said, a high number of people here in Metro Las Vegas bought those Raiders tickets for the sole purpose of reinvesting and reselling them to make a profit.
1: There was another challenge for the Raiders and for the stadium, and that had to do with parking. Is that ever going to get resolved?
0: Well, that's going to be a work in progress, Ira. That is an ongoing issue that Clark County, Las Vegas Metro Police, and the Raiders all work together on fine-tuning. Uh, there was a lot of publicity. In fact, I wrote a lot of the stories myself regarding a lot of the parking and traffic hassles initially for the Garth Brooks event on July 10th and also the Mexico versus USA Gold Cup game on August 1st. Now, there was improvements for the Raiders game, The Raiders game that was on August 14th actually had improved logistics. It was also the first game that the RTC game express bus was implemented. And there were 3,250 round trips. So you're talking about if there were about 50,000 people in the building and 3,250 in terms of round trips, you're talking about, about 6.5% of all the fans for that game came via bus. So that also lined the load. They have readjusted in uh, places where people can pick up the Uber and Lyft rides. And they have also tried to communicate to people to please come early, pick your route, make sure you know where you're going to park. And things have improved from the Saturday game where the Raiders played Seattle from the first events back in uh, July. So there, things have improved.
1: There's also some changes at the top with the Raiders. Is that common for football teams that come into a new market, or is that just the nature of the business?
0: Well, uh, I wrote extensively about the president of the team, Mark Bedane. At this point, we have to call him the past president or former president. Mark Bedane, stepping down on July 19th. It was a shocker, to say the least, caught most people off guard. Even the workers themselves were really blindsided by Mark Bidane resigning. It came out of the blue. Mark Bidane worked for the Raiders for 30 years. He started as an intern, worked himself up running the financial side of things, and then became president about five years ago to oversee the Raiders' move from Oakland to Las Vegas. And also basically head up the effort in terms of finding a new stadium for the Raiders. He was the point man for the franchise in terms of the NFL team's move to the Las Vegas market. And he resigned about a month before the ribbon cutting to a project that he worked tirelessly for. So I wrote a very long story about how mysterious and how strange and how odd the timing was for a team president to step down a week before the ribbon cutting of a project that he worked so hard to attain. Uh, The new interim president is Dan Ventrelli. Dan has been with the Raiders for 17 years. He was pretty much Mark McDain's right-hand man. He was the uh, senior VP who, was the general counsel for the team. He's very familiar with all the issues facing the team. So he seemed to be a, a logical replacement for Bedane. But again, it was uh, rather shocking, to say the least, when the former president of the Raiders stepped down without any notice on July 19th.
1: Wouldn't you think it also strange, Alan, that let's say he had good reasons for resigning, but wouldn't he come back for the ribbon cutting just for recognition of what he accomplished?
0: Yeah, I think most people would be led to believe that this is not a voluntary resignation. And if he left under choppy circumstances, uh, maybe it wasn't the best idea for him to show up at the ribbon cutting.
1: Because you write such insightful reports about what's going on, not just with the Raiders, but obviously with other sports in Las Vegas, do you get blowback from team officials, say the Raiders, for example, or Vegas Golden Knights, if something you wrote about that they didn't necessarily want to have out there, and yet it is out there. Do you end up getting a little cold shoulders?
0: Uh, not, not necessarily. I try to be fair and accurate with my reporting, and I think the executives with the teams on the business side recognize that I do try to be fair and accurate. And with that in mind, uh, they might not necessarily like the fact that those stories are out there, but I think... We have professional source reporter relationships, and I think based on that, uh, we have a pretty solid working relationship.
1: I think it's too because they perceive you as not having an agenda, and as a result, even if it's a tough story, as you say, you're fair about it, so you're not going to get the blowback somebody else might who just has an ax to grind either against the team or against an individual executive or player.
0: Yes, my agenda is to simply write compelling news, anything that's new on the business side, on the marketing side. I try to write as comprehensively as possible. I I have a lot of experience in this area since I've covered the business of sports in the Tampa Bay and South Florida and Denver and Seattle markets before Las Vegas. So I think the folks there at both the major league teams here in Las Vegas recognize that my intention really is to write aggressive, breaking news, comprehensive news, sometimes with a dose of analysis involved. But like you said, there's no agenda at play. I'm just trying to write the most compelling information possible.
1: And it's a unique aspect of what you do because not everybody can do that for an independent reporter. And so you're not working for a newspaper as you did in the past you're working for yourself and so you you could take a position you could take an opinion about something but in fact you're you're trying to play it down the middle as far as being fair to a team or to a player or to an executive
0: i think as a journalist even though i'm not technically working for a daily newspaper i still take the same ethics and approach that i had as a journalist keep in mind i came up through the city hall business reporting, uh, pipeline, I wasn't a sports writer. So I'm taking the same city hall business writing approach and applying those standards to an area in sports where I think the business folks at these teams appreciate the fact that I don't have an opinion at play. I'm coming really from just the facts approach that I learned as a journalist working for Metro newspapers on city side, metro side, business department.
1: And even though you're online, it's not a blog, per se. It is. You know,
0: I, it's, uh, I like to uh, stop people in their tracks right there. I, right. It's legitimate news site. My approach is breaking news. Also, I take pride in our enterprise and comprehensive stories. And occasionally, based on the fact that I do have a lot of institutional knowledge on the topic of stadiums and sports marketing, sometimes I will do a quote-unquote an an analysis piece just to put breaking news into some kind of context.
1: Right, and that's why it's not a blog. It it is a news site, and it's online, and people can go again 24-7, unlike in the past where you couldn't always get news when you wanted to on, on that particular subject. You know, we've been talking about the Raiders, but there's another team in Las Vegas, the Vegas Golden Knights, and they've had an interesting year. Do you think, again, from the business standpoint, with Fleury being traded, will that have an impact on their sales of tickets?
0: I don't think so. He, uh, Marc-Andre Fleury was an immensely popular player. In fact, it's funny you mention him, Ira, because I was just at T-Mobile Arena yesterday. I floated inside the, the team store that's built inside the arena. And there they were, the number 29 jersey still hanging there. And I'm sure they'll eventually be sold out. But keep in mind that the Vegas Golden Knights are very, they have a very different emotional relationship to this market than the Raiders. The Raiders are a long established national, if not international brand that is part of the National Football League. The Vegas Golden Knights have a very emotional connection to this market that I think transcends even ticket sales. And I think that's why they do so well with merchandise sales and all kinds of business deals with corporate partnerships and such. People have a very emotional tie and connection to this Vegas Golden Knights franchise. They were not moved from a different market. They were born organically. Here in Las Vegas, and also, let's—we'll never forget this—you know—their first game at home in the regular season uh, was only nine days after the October first massacre on the Strip in 2017. So the, the the team and its miracle march to the National Hockey League Stanley Cup Finals will always be intertwined. With the emotional healing of this market, and because of that emotional connection, I think the Vegas Golden Knights will always do well financially. As long as their wins and losses are, you know, doing pretty well, uh, you're going to see sellouts day in, you know, game in, game out at T-Mobile Arena.
1: I was thinking, though, Alan, from the point of view that Flurry was the face of the team, and there was that emotional connection with him as well as the team, as you mentioned. So he has that emotional tie as well, and it just, it was almost, the team had done all kinds of interesting things, including they got rid of the original coach, but to get rid of Flurry or to trade Flurry right at that moment, it just seemed to be a wake-up call to the fans who always thought of the team sentimentally, but yet here is a cold business decision made to trade somebody that had the heart of the, uh, the community.
0: Well, keep in mind, Ira, that I don't think the Golden Knights wanted to necessarily trade Flurry just for the sake of trading, but they had to dump his salary. Keep in mind that there's a hard cap in the National Hockey League of 81.5 million dollars, and there's a lot of chess pieces being moved. And at the end of the day, the Golden Knights could not afford to have eight million dollars tied up with Flurry, the five million dollars tied up with Robin Leonard and also fill in some of the gaps that had to be filled in the rest of the lineup. So at the end of the day, it was pretty much a cap space decision to dump Fleury's salary. And technically speaking, they, they traded for a player who was pretty much a minor league player, a defenseman, I believe, but the player will actually stay back in Chicago and play for their minor league team, so technically they didn't even get a warm body in return. It was basically a salary dump, plain and simple.
1: Yes, and that happens all the time in sports. I guess my point was, I don't think Las Vegans were necessarily ready for that yet, given their emotional connection yeah, to I the team. Some,
0: I mean, some were, some weren't. I mean, some of the people who know the financial realities of a hard salary cap understand that it's part of the uh, business. But like you said, there's also fans who don't really care to, to even think about salary caps. And all they know is that they love Flurry and his kind of goofy sense of humor. And he's a really legitimate, nice guy who I think a lot of people could relate to. He's very unpretentious, did a lot of funny videos for the Golden Knight. You know, people might be familiar with the, uh, business deal where the uh, Krispy Kreme donut company gives away a dozen free donuts when there's a shutout. And there was one video where Marc-Andre Fleury, after a shutout, a- uh, after a shutout actually showed up at a drive-thru at a Krispy Kreme, looking to get his 12 free donuts himself. So <laughs> that was kind of, you know, that was, uh, created a lot of chuckles there. But the point is that, you know, he's a pretty down to earth, funny guy who, a lot of people can relate to, and quite frankly, they really don't care about a salary cap. Like you said, they they lost the face of the franchise.
1: Right, which to me, there is a cost associated with that. Just out of curiosity, did you ever try to use your press credentials when there was a, an opportunity to go to <laughs> Krispy Kreme for those donuts and see if you, you know, could get my, a dozen?
0: I, I never did that, and quite frankly, uh, I'm kind of a donut cake with chocolate icing kind of guy. So the donuts Krispy Kreme actually provide and offer isn't my cup of tea when it comes to uh, donuts anyway. So <laughs> wasn't really I wasn't really tempted to uh, pull that maneuver, Ira.
1: Understood. <laughs> because of your background, as you said, coming up through the City Hall and business beat, and it's a somewhat of a non-emotional approach, a very professional approach to writing, how do you... Keep, though, any emotions you may have in check from the point of view of perhaps a player or a team that you are emotionally connected to, but you can separate yourself out from.
0: Yeah, it's basically being a professional, Ira. I mean, I covered the Tampa Bay Lightning in 2004 when they won the Stanley Cup. They're actually the two-time defending Stanley Cup champs now in 2020 and also 2021. But before these two Stanley Cup wins, Their last Stanley Cup championship was in 2004, and I covered that for the Tampa Tribune from the business and Metro side, and I remember standing literally next to the president of the team of the Tampa Bay Lightning when the second winded down, and they won Game 7 against the Calgary Flames 3-2, to and you know what? All he did was grab me and hug me, because I was the person next to him, and Usually, you know, a reporter shouldn't be hugging the president of a team, but you know, as a human being, you do something. But also, I think uh, the president of the team also knew that uh, I was responsible enough to write a professional story. I mean, obviously, it was a fun story that the Lightning won the cup, but um, obviously, you know, reporters are human too. We have feelings, but you know, if you're a veteran and if you're and if you have ethics, you know where the line is, and you separate the emotions from the professional job of reporting a story accurately and fairly. And I would
1: be remiss if I didn't mention your true passion, which is bicycles.
0: Yeah, I just want to throw in my book. During the pandemic, I did write Bicycle Man, Life of Journeys. It's a compilation of my bicycle adventures of a 30 years. In fact, today, I just sold the book to a woman who I met here in Semelin. And I gotta tell you, it's been really one of the really interesting and fun and very rewarding, satisfying tasks I've done during the pandemic. I wrote this book and published the book and I'm now marketing the book during the pandemic. I like to call this the pan, hashtag pandemic born book. And I really, I self published the book. I enjoy selling the book personally to people. And if someone just wants to buy a book, it sells for 20 bucks. And you can just email me at asnell at lvsportsbiz.com.
1: That's a great way to do it. Talk about retail marketing. I have this picture of of you in my mind of riding your bike with saddlebags full of books. And just as you encounter people, you're just selling them to (laughs) this person and that person.
0: I um, I enjoy talking to people about the book. I like the fact that people. Who read, I think are the most interesting people because they're looking to suck in as much experiences as they can that they might not be able to witness firsthand. And it's kind of funny. Everyone talks about computer skills and technical skills. I think one of the most important skills you can teach anyone is just the love of reading.
1: The love of reading indeed. That's something that people tend to forget because it it takes concentration, and yet you can learn from it, you can enjoy it emotionally, and yeah, love of reading.
0: Everything is just so social media-oriented and video-oriented and soundbite-oriented and snarky-oriented. I came out with this book, and i got to say, it's been really rewarding getting the feedback. I've had readers tell me that they've just said the book is a gem, they keep it next to their nightstand. They read a chapter a night, and I even had a friend who said that it's just the right book for the right time, since it is a very stressful time. The book is really a compilation of everyday stories about people who ride bikes to all kinds of places, and also some of my long-distance cross-country bike trips as well. There's a lot of on-the-road funny stories about biking across the country. So I really strongly urge people to buy the book and just email me and we can uh if if you're in the las vegas area i actually will deliver the book to you and if you're not i'll just simply mail it to you
1: oh that's great great service and it's a great way to end it my guest has been alan snell whose popular website lvsportsbiz.com reports the business side of las vegas's expanding sports industry For everything about Alan Snell, go to LVSportsBiz.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at LVSportsBiz. Alan, thanks again for being on the show.
0: Ira, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and I I love your program. It gives such a nice kind of fleshy feel for the entire Las Vegas market. I mean, there's a lot of meat in a lot of interviews, and I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for the compliment. I appreciate that, and see you next time.
0: You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world.